Welcome in to the Tapping the Keg Daily for September 18th. It is Monday. It is not a victory Monday. The Green Bay Packers lose to the Atlanta Falcons 25-24. to We're going to talk about the defense rearing its ugly head again. We're also going to talk about the Brewers Stadium Bill and their awesome series against the Washington Nationals. And then wonder what's up with the Wisconsin Badgers so starts and how is that going to affect them for Big Ten play. Before we get going, just a reminder, you know it. I know I don't need to remind you because I remind you on every podcast, but we're on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, Tabbing the Keg, Tabbing the Keg Sports on Instagram, as well as TikTok, as well as Facebook. Uh, If you are already followed, you're already engaged on those platforms, that's great. We'd love to have you on more if you're on more. Make sure that you've subscribed to the podcast. I assume you have, uh, but we're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, if you already are subscribed, Drop us in the group chat. Drop, leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. I know a lot of people do great work around the state of Wisconsin in terms of content creation. But we are, I think, one of the few, if not the only, that talks about everything, that gets everything into a podcast. So you have all of the Wisconsin sports as you need to know, not just the Green Bay Packers in this podcast, which will be who knows how long, how short, but you have all the information at your fingertips. And I, I hope you guys enjoy it. And I love giving it to you. I love these very packed uh, fall Mondays. Uh, they're great. So let's dive in. Let's talk about the Green Bay Packers and this disheartening defense. The Green Bay Packers had a great defensive performance week one. They allowed 14 total point, or 20 total points, but the last touchdown was a garbage time touchdown. They looked like a different defense. They were running to the balls. They were making tackles. They were frustrating Justin Fields. It seemed like the Packers from the end of last year had taken that that same step and that this was going to be a new era of Packers defense and it finally was going to get fixed. It even looked good during this game. The Packers had held the Atlanta Falcons to 12 points heading into the fourth quarter. Now, there were some signs of cracks, right? Uh, Atlanta was starting to pick up steam there in the third half, third quarter, and you could feel the momentum shifting. And you're like, well, maybe, you know, they force a turnover, they make Desmond Ritter do something dumb, and they can kind of turn it all around. Instead, Green Bay turtled and allowed themselves, as Matt LaFleur said, to get shredded. The Green Bay Packers allowed 446 total yards. They allowed 211 in the first second half, pardon me. And Joe Barry did the same Joe Barry thing that we've seen time and time again, which is getting his lunch eaten by a offensive coordinator, Arthur Smith, this time around. He had Green Bay in an absolute spin cycle for the second half, and Green Bay didn't know what the fuck to do. And it was the same song and dance that we have seen time and again with a Joe Barry-led defense. And it is just disheartening that Matt LaFleur decided to keep this guy around. Because that, to me, was one of the biggest knocks on Matt LaFleur this offseason. I was very excited to see what Matt LaFleur could do without Aaron Rodgers. I actually think the results have been pretty good. He needs to get a little less conservative and let Jordan Love sling it. I understand that he's probably still trying to protect Jordan Love. But really, the protection of his friends is way worse. Joe Barry did not deserve to get his job back. 
And maybe if Jim Leonard was ready to coach, I know he's a special assistant for Illinois, but you're not really working. You're just kind of there hanging out, helping the team, but it's not the same as being an actual defensive coordinator for somebody. So it's it's definitely uh, a very interesting decision that they gave Joe Barry a second chance. I, I, I truly, truly cannot believe it because it didn't feel like he deserved it. And you watch week two and he is immediately on the hot seat again. There is no sort of time to waste here. And I'm not saying that they're gonna fire him this week. No one's gonna get fired this week, all right? And and I, but I do think that there is a, a conversation that needs to be had about if the Packers have all this talent on defense, why is this still happening? Why is this the same story? Because it feels like a broken record and changes have to be made in some capacity. And what laurels that Joe Barry was resting on and hoping that his defense would look different have to change. This guy got torn up by Desmond Ritter, who's a bottom five quarterback. I do not think Desmond Ritter is a good quarterback, okay? I, I really don't. I do not think Desmond Ritter, you know, has what it takes to be a competent quarterback in the NFL. But I, he looked the part today. He looked the part today. And that is partly because Joe Barry doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. And, and that is so frustrating. They didn't force a punt in the second half, guys. The Chicago Bears made this thing into a mirage. And that's the part that's disheartening because with all the injuries that the offense has right now, the defense is fully healthy. I know Rashawn Gary is still getting back. I guess Luke Van Ness had a stinger. But to me, that is not enough to be like, oh yeah, this, this defense you know took a step back because they're missing X, Y, and Z. If Kenny Clark wasn't playing or if Devondre Campbell wasn't playing and they gave up this many yards, I would... I'd be a little more sympathetic. I might be even defending Joe Barry to be like, well, this is an awful matchup to not have Kenny Clark or Devondre Campbell. But all of those guys were there and they still struggled against Robinson Algier and Desmond Ritter. Now, you could argue that this is one of maybe a bad matchup for, for the Packers, but I don't necessarily want to hear it because guess what? The best teams in the NFC run the football. So you need to be better against teams like this. Mark Murphy at the beginning of the year in the shareholders meeting talked about how much that they are going to rely on defense and said, we need to rely on their defense for the start of the year to get Jordan ready to play. He specifically mentioned, I believe, the first six weeks of the season. This is the response that you get in week two and that is a massive, massive step back for Green Bay. And it, it kind of puts things back into perspective. It's like, all right, this defense is not legit. I don't think it's an overreaction to worry about it because it, Atlanta's, I don't think Atlanta's very good. And maybe if it turns out that the Falcons are the best team in the NFC South, I'll look back at this and say, oh yeah, I overreacted to it. And that I lost my mind about a, an Atlanta team that's actually a playoff team. But still, the Packers should be a little bit better. That's, that, that's, all, that's all I'm asking for, right? The fact that they didn't allow a punt, the fact that they let this game sort of slip through the cracks of their hands. And the offense can't be, shouldn't be absolved for all of this, by the way. Uh, but I think the root of the problem, the real concern, 
is just not being able to, to get a stop, to have a third down stop at some point, to have a fourth down stop at some point, right? Desmond Ritter had the, the take that got the touchdown on fourth and four. You had the fourth and inches play that happened. Like there was just so many little moments in that fourth quarter where the Packers could have flipped the momentum and they didn't. I don't also want to hear from the analytics nerds. They're like, oh, momentum isn't real. Momentum is very real. Like it, it is extremely real. And the Packers were rolling downhill and no one did anything to stop it. Uh, and it ended up into a Packers loss. Now, should we sell all of our defensive stock? Should we just be like, this team is a bottom five defense? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think we should sell some of it, but I don't think it should be a complete fire sale. I just want everyone to think about this for a second. J.R. Alexander dropped a pick six on a fourth and five. They did get a stop on that fourth and five moment, but Jair dropped a pick six. That would have been a house call for the Packers. And I believe that was, it was a 10 to six at that point for Green Bay. That would have made, or was it 10 nine? No, because Atlanta gets the touchdown. They missed the extra points. It was 10 three. So Green Bay would have had a 17 to three lead at that point when Jair dropped that interception. That number one. Number two, Quay Walker also dropped an interception that would have gave Green Bay a short field and maybe would have led to another field goal or another touchdown. Even if they get one of those, the Packers probably win this game. Packers are probably 2-0 and we're talking about, you know, what is the ceiling for this Green Bay Packer team? And instead, we're worrying about the defense again, like that fuck-up kid you have where they just keep screwing up. And it's like, it's like this vicious cycle of like, all right, Got to worry about Johnny again. We have to like, and that's what we've had to do with this defense for God knows how long. It has never got to a point where it's like, wow, we have a defense. There is a ton of talent on this defensive roster to maybe have it. But the question is, is can he, being Joe Barry, coach it up? And the fact that guys like Brian Flores, who I know did not really have a great game against Philadelphia. But if you think about, I will I will note there about that game for Minnesota. First of all, Minnesota has a, to me, a bottom five defensive roster. Minnesota does not have the talent that we do on our, on our defense. And on top of that, they were down 27 to seven, remember? And they were able to keep that, the defense was able to keep them in it going forward. And they nearly, you know, they had a chance. You know, there was a chance for Minnesota to potentially win this game or tie tie this game. So that to me, that that is Flores deserves some credit. I think Elijah Evro is a good defensive coordinator. He's now with Carolina. Like I just man, there there were opportunities for Green Bay to get better as their defensive play caller, and they didn't take advantage of them. Now the question, the other question about the selling of the stock would be, does anybody run the ball as good as Atlanta that the Packers are going to see in the next couple of weeks? New Orleans doesn't have Alvin Kamara. Alvin Kamara is going to miss the game. It's Jamal Williams. He rushed for 45 yards in the first game. Jamal Williams always likes to get back at the Packers, but I think that you can handle a Jamal Williams and maybe Kendrick Miller, kid from TCU, didn't play week one, but maybe he plays next week. Detroit might not have Dave Montgomery. He left the game on a cart with a thigh injury, but you have to deal with Jameer Gibbs, who's absolutely electric. Las Vegas, you have to deal with Josh Jacobs and see if you can handle you know, a Josh Jacobs forward running attack. So there's going to be teams that are gonna keep trying to exploit you. I think the other fear, at least for Detroit, maybe not New Orleans or Vegas, is 
Ben Johnson is smarter than Joe Barry. And it seems when Joe Barry is in a chess match against an offensive mastermind, he usually gets his lunch eaten. So the question is, is can Joe Barry learn from this? Can Joe Barry figure out what he needs to do differently on this play? I know the one where Bijan Robinson was split out and Devondre Campbell was guarding him. They do the, the slant play. It's a fourth and three. It's a completion. I agree with the film boys who are like, Devondre Campbell should have been playing up. I 100% agree with that because Devondre Campbell's not fast enough. But John Robinson, you know, breaks away from him on the screen. But why is Devondre Campbell in this game? Why aren't they running a dime package? Why aren't they making sure that they have a ton of corners and safeties out there and not necessarily a linebacker who's a little slower, right? If they have a linebacker out there, isn't that why we drafted Quay Walker? So Quay Walker could be out there and he's sort of a spy maybe? Like, to me, that's that's the part that's that, that begs the question. Is it due to the fact that we don't really have a ton of corner depth right now with Eric Stokes still on the pup? I'm not quite sure. The Packers need to figure out how to stop a, a good running attack. Because as I mentioned earlier, you have the Eagles, you have the 49ers. Those are probably the two best teams in the NFC right now and probably for the remainder of the year. Those two teams run the fucking football. Those two teams also have pretty solid offensive coaching staffs, more so San Francisco than Philadelphia. The Packers got to figure it out. And if this continues to be a theme, if they continue to get run on in the next few games, Joe Barry should not survive a bye week. Joe Barry has three games, in, in my opinion. And, and that's how I think Matt LaFleur should treat it as well. He has three games to figure this out. And if you don't, you have Kurt Alvarati, uh, which I probably butchered his name, who's had, I think had some DC experience in the past. Greg Williams uh, has not been a defensive coach, but he's or not been a DC, but he's been a promising sort of young, talented defensive coach. Leslie Frazier is doing some special assistant work for Green Bay. There, there are options that you can go with, and the Packers might need to head that way if things continue to go off the rails. But like I said, there's reasons not to completely be a fire sale about this defense. But it's just so damn disappointing that this happened again and that we're having this conversation again in week two of the 2023 NFL season. Let's get into Golden Kegs. Uh, if you're familiar uh, with it or you, or if you're not, let's get into Golden Kegs. Uh, Golden Kegs, if you are not familiar with it, it's where we give a grade to different things that happen during the game Five kegs being the best, one keg being the worst, and that's sort of how we grade the game, if you will. I tried to add in a few little stories here and there, uh, so it's not all just like, yeah, this guy played great or this guy didn't play great or moments. Uh, so it's, it's definitely a, it's definitely grown. Uh, so I'm excited to bring it to you for week number two. Five kegs goes to Quay Walker. Quay Walker was my only five keg guy for the game, I, I think he had 17 tackles uh, total. He had eight solo. I just felt like Quay Walker was everywhere on the football field. I thought Quay Walker made some really good tackles. I thought that he was always sort of where he needed to be. I, I really enjoyed this performance from Quay Walker. I don't know if Pro Football Focus will agree with me, but I just felt like the guy was everywhere. And the only one that 
really see him to stick his nose in uh, and make sure that Bajan Robinson and Algier and Desmond Ritter were going down. Um, there weren't a lot of moments where I was like, wow, Walker missed that or he it, they zoomed past him. He seemed ready for the rushing attack of Atlanta. I don't think anybody else really matched that energy. So it was good to see Quay play well. He's had a very promising start to the season. It's also good that he was able to play after suffering the concussion last week in Chicago. Uh, I think that's uh, that was encouraging and definitely was a guy that was needed because if you didn't have Quay Walker on, on that field on Sunday, I don't know, but the Packers might have given up 500 yards of, of on the ground and Atlanta might have just went absolutely crazy. So Good stuff from Quay Walker getting my five keg. The other five keg I have is ribs for a game day meal. I went over to my wife's parents' house for the game uh, because her grandma uh, was cooking ribs and she does these great oven baked ribs. Uh, and it was just, it was a fantastic game day meal. Uh, we ate pretty much right at kickoff, which I would have started a little earlier. I, I came in empty stomach. I didn't have anything for breakfast. And I went to town. Uh, my wife was like, I was disturbed at how many ribs you ate. So that means I got to do a little bit of extra work on the Peloton or the treadmill um, on Monday. Uh, I didn't, I kind of, I'll be honest, I blacked out a little bit because it was like, it was this unlimited ribs. Like my wife's family cooks a ton. They always make more than, than they need to, which is, is great. Like, I, I think that's the best practice. I think if you're hosting, you always should make more. And yeah, I went hammer time on those ribs and it was just a excellent way to kick off the football day. And I'm not, I'm not a huge, like I need to have like a big spread for every game. I think for like primetime games, I think that's a, that's an ideal time to make sure that you have, you have those spreads and that you're kind of ready to roll with those. Uh, but I don't think it's something that you need for every game. Like they just, you know, especially the 325. It's that's always a tough one, but this was nice to have, and I would recommend uh, ribs for game day. Maybe that's something you do, whether it's week three, week four. But yeah, you you're gonna have some opportunities with the primetime games on Thursday, and then the primetime game on Monday. Monday's also another tough one because it's like the start of the week. So it's like, do you have a few more beers on Monday than you usually do, and that's it? But you eat sort of healthy. Yeah, it's 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 always. Football eating is is tough, right? It's never it's never a uh, an easy science because you can certainly overdo it, and I did. I will say I had it was had to go to the Tums at six p.m. of and which wasn't great. Uh, but you know what? Are you, what are you gonna do? Uh, four kegs goes to Rasul Douglas. Rasul Douglas played really well in this game. I know he gave up that touchdown to Matt Collins, but he he did get picked by Kyle Pitts. I broadcast completely missed that. Uh, and I thought Rasul had a nice game. He had an interception. He had four tackles. He had two pass deflections. A solid, solid game from Sewell. It seemed like he he made himself known in this game. I, I wish actually I would have seen Sewell a little more on Drake London. Uh, I don't actually know if he moved to Drake London in the second half. Drake London you know, had some big games against, uh, big moments against Jair. And I don't know if they moved Sewell onto Drake London, but if they did, uh, he was a little 
a little quiet in that second half. And yeah, I, I think Rasul Douglas, you know, continues to be a solid player for this Green Bay Packers team. And, you know, there was a little bit of a sign that he had taken a step back halfway through last year. And then he came on strong at the end of the year, kind of like the whole defense did. And now you're, you know, he's a competent football player. He's a guy that you can rely on. I don't think that he should lose his starting spot when Eric Stokes is back. I think that's still Rasul Douglas's, you know, job. And I think Stokes is your third guy or even maybe your fourth if you're just trying to kind of acclimate him back to football as it's going to be an adjustment uh, for Stokes as he you know deals with quite a serious leg injury that he's coming back from, which could be back, I think, as early as week five of the NFL season. Jaden Reed also gets a four keg for me. Jaden Reed continues to impress. Uh, I, I love the fact that you got Jaden Reed you know, running the pop pass. You had Jaden Reed in the slot. You had Jaden Reed as a boundary wide receiver. I thought there was, this was a really good game for Jaden Reed, and he continues to kind of show his toolbox, and he can do it all. And that, to me, is, is really exciting uh, to see what the future holds for him. Because I think when the Packers are full strength offensively, when you have Watson, when you have Aaron Jones, that they're they are going to be cooking with peanut oil. And the experience that him and other guys are getting right now with Watson being out, I think really matters. And I think that'll really pay off in the long run. And you know, Reed definitely had some had some nice moments and had two touchdowns in this game and kind of I would say is borderline a, a problem for t- for teams. He's definitely been a tough guy to defend. You know, he's so he's had well, he had four catches for thirty seven yards. He had five, two catches, I believe, for fifty eight in the and in, in his first two games as an NFL player. It's a pretty solid start uh, for Jaden Reed's season. Uh, also, a four kegger goes to Kenny Clark. I, Kenny Clark, I know what the Atlanta rushing attack did against the Packers. We talked about it at length, but I felt like Kenny Clark has really shown up to start the year. Uh, He had a half sack in this game. He was getting through on the interior offensive line of Atlanta. I think the reason why Atlanta was running to off the tackles was because of the way that Kenny Clark was controlling the middle. They were running away from Kenny Clark, you know, in that second half. That was a great adjustment by Arthur Smith that the Packers really didn't do anything to counteract. But that's not Kenny Clark's fault. Um, And Kenny Clark played really well in this game. And he continues to sort of, you know, be a a bright spot for this Packers defense. And I, I hope that this continues for him. I think that's always the fear with Kenny Clark is that, he has a couple good games and then he disappears for a couple games. Then he has another couple good games and then he disappears. Hopefully this is a more consistent version of Kenny Clark. But maybe it's because he has more help now with the TJ Slaytons and the Devontae Wyatts and Carl Brooks and others that are, are there for him. Three kegs goes to Jordan Love. He was 14 of 25 with 151 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, Love did have a 113 pass rating in this game but he only averaged six yards per pass. I think at some point, Matt LaFleur needs to let the restrictor plate go off Jordan Love. I don't know if that's going to be after the sort of mini buy in Detroit. And he's like, all right, 
It's a quarter of the season. It's your it's your team now. You can start feeling you know empowered to make decisions at the line, do things a little bit differently, sling it downfield. But it seems like they are playing it a little conservatively with Jordan Love. And the numbers would say, the advanced numbers would say that Jordan Love still has room to grow. And I just hope that that, it, that happens. Uh, Jordan Love struggled in that second half. He, you know, After that second touchdown, he went 0 for 6. Uh, it was pretty rough. Uh, the two-minute drill without any timeouts was a complete clusterfuck for for love but that to me doesn't surprise isn't surprising right you don't have watson you don't have jones that's where you need watson and jones you don't have elton jenkins and david bakhtiari blocking for you it was man that was just tough and it was you know that those are the growing pains that that stuff that's you know, might not happen in November or December where Love is in a similar situation. He kind of figures it out or knows. You know, Aaron Rodgers lost so many games, you know, when it was like last second moments where he had a chance because defense couldn't stop a cold. And Rodgers, I think he started out, he had it won, it's like 0-7 to start his career in fourth quarter comebacks. And and it's just a learning experience. And so I think Love will learn from from this and understand, you know, what he has to do to sort of get, you know, to another level. But I also think Matt LaFleur needs to take off the training wheels a little bit. I think it's time. I, I don't think you can continue to sort of dance around this with Love. It's like, all right, man, this guy can sling it. I think everybody feels it. Everybody knows it, that Jordan Love is this dude. And they just need to just push it a little bit more. And I, it could be by design and it could just be us as, as fans being a little impatient and not necessarily sort of ready for it. Uh, other three keg, Dontravian Wicks, uh, he had two catches for 40 yards. He had the 32-yard grab for the touchdown for Green Bay, which at that point you're like, okay, Packers, wow, Packers might win this game. Uh, they might get their second straight road win. Uh, Wicks also had a ball that I, I still, I don't know, if I think if he would have adjusted differently with A.J. Tyrell or stopped and turned around, maybe he catches it. That was an absolute dot from Jordan Love that led to the field goal uh, for Green Bay. But uh, Don Travian Wicks, man, it, he's he has he's again another guy that's kind of showing up and that he looks the part and and he's going to be good. It's it's just going to take some time. It's not it's not going to be built overnight for Wicks. But he had four targets in this game. You know, he was the second guy that Love looked to the most. Uh, Reed had eight targets in this game. So those were the two guys that Love was really honed in on in this game. And AJ Terrell pretty much washed away Romeo Dobbs in this football game with Dobbs only having three total targets, who's been sort of Love's guy. And I, I think that's actually good for Love to kind of get that experience with Wicks and Reed. And yeah, Wicks looks the part. I, I, I don't have any reservations about what I've seen out of him. And I, I do wonder if, you know, he was downgraded for just playing in a bad offense at Virginia. And that if he played on a better, you know, team and a better offense, would he have been a fourth round pick? Would he have been a third round pick? And I know he had some drop issues too, but yeah, it's just something to think about uh, with Wicks. And, you know, the fact that he can contribute in the second game of his NFL career is, is really big. He was out there a lot in week one. He was doing a lot of blocking and, you know, doing some of the little things, a lot of the dirty work. And yeah, it's, it's good to see, you know, Wicks, you know, having the that part and doing a small part in the game, you know, two for 40. Again, it's not like he blew up the stat sheet, but still a solid day uh, for the rookie. 
Two kegs, let's get negative. <laughs> Darnell Savage gets a two kegger for me. Hey, you know, here's the thing with Darnell Savage. He, it's not like he doesn't try, all right? Like that's, that's the part that's frustrating about Darnell Savage because he gives a shit. Like I can see it. Like he made some big hits early on, but he, you know, there was the flea flicker sort of trickeration play that Savage nearly catches up with Matt Collins on, but he doesn't win the jump ball. And part of it was because Savage was out of position. Savage had a chance to bring down Bijan Robinson in the back backfield on that fourth and inches, or at least slow him down to let the cavalry get there. He overcommits, overruns Bijan Robinson, and just barely, you know, grazes his feet. It's like there is some good in Darnell Savage. He just needs to play within himself. When he plays within himself, he is a good football player. I do like that he's throwing his body around. He just had a couple major moments in this football game that if he just, it's a little bit better, the Packers are probably winning this game. Also a two keg to Devontae Wyatt's disappearance. I have no idea what happened to Devontae Wyatt. Carl Brooks and uh, Colby Wooden played a ton of snaps in this game. Why, why wasn't that, why, why weren't those Wyatt snaps? Is suddenly Wyatt in the doghouse again, even after an amazing week one? Like, what is that all about? So I, that's a little concerning that Wyatt couldn't necessarily follow up on what he did week one. Maybe it's just a blip. Maybe it's just a mirage. But for as good as we, we talked about with Quay Walker, Wyatt was not that person. So that goes with the other two keg. One keg, we have a ton of one keggers because it was there were some ugly things about this game. A.J. Dillon, uh, another rough, rough game for A.J. Dillon. He finishes as the lead runner for the Green Bay Packers, 15 carries, 55 yards, 3.7 yards, eight carry, eight was his longest carry of the day. Really, really bad. Really bad stuff from A.J. Dillon. A.J. Dillon could not convert on a third and one where he trips on his own feet. A.J. Dillon, because he also tripped on his own feet again, led to hitting Elton Jenkins in the back that led to a sprained MCL. A.J. Dillon needs to be better. If A.J. Dillon is not getting the tough yards, then why the fuck is he on the roster? That that needs to be A.J. Dillon's M.O. A.J. Dillon needs to be getting the one to six yards and get sort of, you know, the hard yards that maybe an Aaron Jones or a less physical back won't do. A.J. Dillon should not have the starting spot at this point if Jones is going to miss again in week three. We'll see. But it should definitely be an open tryout with Emmanuel, Emmanuel Wilson, Patrick Taylor, and if Aaron Jones is going to be out for multiple weeks, then you have to look at different running backs. Murph gave me a great list of running backs that are available uh, that I, I think are worth sharing. We had Kareem Hunt is number one on the list. And I, I, Kareem Hunt might be washed up, but it might be worth at least a look. Leonard Fournette's still out there. A playoff Lenny uh, would be the same bruising back that you have with A.J. Dillon. But I, I think I would trust Fournette a little bit more. J.D. McKissick is more of that scat back Aaron Jones type. And James Robinson, again, is a little more of the bruiser that Dylan is supposed to be. But if Dylan can't be this bruiser, the Packers need to cut bait sooner rather than later. Not necessarily get rid of him, but just figure out what he's doing wrong and kind of take take his you know role on the team a, a step back uh, because A.J. Dillon is clearly not the guy right now. And I don't want to hear about his September struggles again. I, I think that's 
more on the way he trains, the more he gets himself ready for the season. Like that's to me a preparation thing. And Dylan needs to figure out why am I tripping over my two feet? What do I need to do differently so that I'm not being such a klutzy runner? He is a klutzy fucking runner, man. And it's really disheartening to see uh, because he's a good guy, right? Like we've given him shit. We called him Door County Dylan. And part of it is just due to the fact that he he just can, he can't seem to break out in any way. David Bakhtiari also gets a one keg for me. And David Bakhtiari decided to miss this game because of turf. Uh, Matt LaFleur did not say that. Uh, David Bakhtiari popped up on the injury report on Friday uh, that he was questionable with a knee. Bakhtiari would not play in the game. Uh, Bakhtiari was present in Atlanta. Um, no one did talk to Bakhtiari after the game and ask him if this was turf related. Uh, Bakhtiari makes himself pretty open to the media. So I would imagine that we will get an answer on that come Tuesday or Wednesday. Bakhtiari also very active on social media. I'm surprised. I'll be interested to see how active he is this week, knowing that a lot of fans are fed up with David Bakhtiari, including myself. And we've told you on this podcast that we're pretty good information that a lot of this issue with turf is in David Bakhtiari's head. That David Bakhtiari believes that turf is the reason that he tore his ACL because he was inside the Packers practice facility and it has kind of fucked his head up mentally ever since. I would imagine that Bakhtiari is going to cite mental health as to why he did not play in this game, hoping for the basically blanket that mental health gives you. But there are guys that play on turf every week. There are guys that have their home games, like a Bajan Robinson, that play every week, every home game on turf. David Bakhtiari can't be a part-time player. David Bakhtiari has paid $80,000 per snap. That is unacceptable for David Bakhtiari to be a part-time player. He should just fucking retire. If that, if the turf thing is such a problem, and I understand it is an issue. I'm not trying to dis- discount that. But if David Bakhtiari is not going to play every game and this is going to be a consistent issue, then he needs to just leave football because this is going to be a problem the rest of his career and teams are going to put up with it because he's a good enough player, I guess. But how does that build any any consistency? How does that build any sort of you know flow with your offensive line? Because every non-grass game, David Bakhtiari is not playing. And if we look at the schedule, they play the Raiders in week five, which will be on turf. So again, you wouldn't have Bakhtiari. And then they play Detroit on turf. They play Minnesota on turf. And I think there's one more that I'm missing that they're on turf for. But you're, you're telling me that you've now missed three NFC games, two that are in your division, and you're also going to miss a, you know, a second game in the first five for Jordan Love. Because you're afraid of the turf. You have to be stronger than that. You have to figure that out. It's two years removed. I could understand if it was a year ago. I could get that. I could get behind that. I could defend that. But it's two years past. We are well past the timeline where this is acceptable or allowed. David Bakhtiari needs to play fucking football or just retire and work out with the Packers and figure out a settlement. It's so funny that Bakhtiari, you know, was 
quoted and there's a big article that Matt Schneidman did about, oh yeah, Bakhtiari is still bringing the leadership and he's still, still, you know, wanting to be out there. And he even said that he could have retired, right? Well, if you want to be out there and you want to be part of this young Packers team, then you got to be out there when you're healthy. It's ridiculous. And it's going to be a major distraction for the Green Bay Packers because this is not going away. Because this will be talked about heading into the Raiders game. This will be talked about heading into the Detroit game. Talked about heading into the Minnesota game. David Bakhtiari has got to toughen up. He's got to be stronger than this. And it's just, it's frankly, it's just unacceptable. I, I just really can't have it. Jair Alexander also gets a one keg. Uh, it was not a good day for Jair Alexander. Uh, he really struggled. Uh, you know, really just Drake London, it's a bad matchup. And there are going to be those bad matchups for Jair Alexander with the number ones being these bigger physical receivers. And Drake London was way too much for, for Jair. And that is a little bit of a red flag. I also think that that, again, is on Joe Barry to be like, all right, we need to do some different things. We need to provide a little more help for Jair. We need, you know, maybe a little more Rasul Douglas on Drake London and then Jair, you know, guarding their other wide receivers like a Mac Collins who kind of became their number two today. Like that's that's kind of what we need, you know, to see more often. Um, so, I, but I felt like Jair had no answer. Uh, there was Sean Gary uh, versus Desmond Ritter, fourth and four. So Rashawn Gary, if he keeps contained on Desmond Ritter, they would give the ball to Bijan Robinson up the middle. There was not a huge hole, and Bijan Robinson would have had to at least get four yards to get that first down. And Rashawn Gary bit on it hard and led to the Ritter touchdown. And while I really like Rashawn Gary, I love what Rashawn Gary has brought to this defense, that type of thing needs to be, be over. If he's going to be a top elite defensive player, they, those guys keep their contained. Those guys make sure that they stay home and that they do not dive in because of the, the chance that Ritter is going to take it out. And other teams are going to try this on Rashawn Gary. And Rashawn Gary is going to have to be disciplined. Now, you play two stats. Really, next three weeks, you, you don't have any quarterbacks to worry about that. But when you face Russell Wilson in a few weeks here, like that, you're going to have to worry about that. You're going to have to worry about that when you face Justin Fields again. You're going to worry about that. When you face you know some of the Mahomes uh, later in the year, like those are guys, Daniel Jones, like they're gonna start exploiting Gary if Gary sort of shows his hand and that he can't stop contain. My last one, Keg. Oh, I I, I actually have more. I which is crazy. We went way too long on our golden kegs, but that's okay. Uh, sometimes that that happens this way. Uh, one, I also have a one keg for Matt LaFleur's decision to kick to punt after the false start. Like Andrews Carlson's supposed to have this awesome leg and he can't kick from 56 to start a game. It was very bizarre. Uh, was, I'm very curious if Matt LaFleur would do that all over again. He said, oh, it was out of his range. That, that's bullshit to me. He made a 57-yarder in preseason. So why do why did we try preseason at 57 outside, by the way, if he couldn't do 56 inside? The last thing I have is my father-in-law, who I love, great guy. I really enjoy him. I don't have any issue with him, except he kept flipping the channels of the game because he, he's a Chiefs fan. He likes the Chiefs um, too. And he wanted to watch Chiefs Jaguars a little bit. So he just kept flipping the channels, kept flipping the channel. Like during like replays and not during commercials. Like it's one thing, like if it's during commercials, fine. But he just kept doing it. And it was driving me up the wall. Like I was just sitting there like, 
please stop. Please. And I, I did say <laughs> in a comment, like, hey, can we keep it on the game? <laughs> like, but it was, you know, it's not my house. It's not my remote. And so his rules. And, but man, it was driving me nuts, especially late in the game. Late in the game, it was like, my wife, I, you know, was texting my wife, like, this is driving me crazy. And she's, and at one point it kept happening. And she's like, are you raging right now? And I'm like, I'm trying not to. And then she said something. And, you know, that was, was nice. That's, that's a good partnership right there. Uh, but yeah, we're gonna have to work on that. Uh, and maybe I just watch uh, standalone games with him <laughs> going, going forward. All right, that does it for Golden Kegs. Let's talk about the rest of the Wisconsin sports weekend, starting off with the Brewer Stadium. The Wisconsin State Republicans have a proposed bill to keep the Milwaukee Brewers in the state uh, that's coming out this week. The bill is $700 million with 600 of that coming from the state, the city, and the county. The state would pay 400 million of that. Uh, and then the state would pay, yeah, 400 million. The, the county and the city would pay 200. The brewers would chip in 100 to 125. I wanna provide facts and things to know and then questions off of what's happening because I think that's the best way to talk about it. I don't think it's really worth taking aside because it's a very divisive topic. And I think there are things that are worth remembering, things that are, are good to keep in mind. But then also, I think there are things that deserve to be a little bit challenged. I think the biggest thing to know is the fact that brewers do not own this building. The building belongs to the state. The state owns this building. Unlike the Pfizer Forum, it belongs to the state. This is why they are proposing to foot a majority of the bill. This is the state's responsibility to keep the upkeep of the stadium. Now I know what you're gonna say, Charlie. Charlie, 700 million, that really isn't close to what Tony Evers commission and the, the other commission stated. You're right. The first commission was 427, I think it was 400, and then Evers commission got it to 428 to 667. Now, some of that could be inflation, but I, I do think it's a little bit on the high end. To me, that could be an, an adjustment, an alteration that we see. The state government wants the city and the county to pay some of this. Remember, Tony Evers wanted to put $300 million of the state's budget surplus to this stadium, and the Republican legislature legislators pulled that back. This seems to be a huge part of contention. The city and the county do not necessarily want to pay for it. And that is the thing that I do expect to get altered. I don't expect this to be the final version of the bill. I could see a scenario where the brewers are paying a little bit more and the city and county are paying less. I will add though, it is dangerous for the city and the county to reduce their investment on the stadium because their voice and what they can do and how they can operate will lessen. If they have fewer seats at the table, the brewers are going to kind of work unilaterally and not necessarily work with the city, work with the county because the investment isn't there like it used to be. 
And I think that is a dangerous thing. And I think that's something that County Supervisor David Crawley, uh, Chevy Johnson have to keep in mind, even if they feel like they're getting you know a brunt of the deal. Now, to me, at least the the proposal of five million over twenty seven years, you know, it, it it seems feasible. It seems workable. But I can also understand that there's a lot of issues going on, and do you need to pay for it? I was a big I was a big proponent against the uh, streetcar, for example. And it was th- that was sort of the same sort of logic. Like, do we really need to be spending $100 million on a fucking streetcar? Like, we have so much wrong in Milwaukee, so much things that need to get fixed. Is $100 million really going to make sense? But when it goes to $5 million over 27 years, is that really enough to get upset about? I realize $5 million can help, but does it really go a long way? My wife talked about this a lot when we were getting married. Now, granted, that's not five million, but when you're getting married and you're wedding planning, like hundred dollars is like nothing, right? And I know some of you are like, "Whoa," but no, it's serious. Like you can just, you spend hundred dollars so easily. Like that to me, that is not necessarily a huge amount of money for a wedding. So for a city, a big city at that, how much is really five million dollars? I'm not sure. So. That said, uh, I do expect it to get altered, though. Uh, Representative LeMayu, I think he's state senator from Utsberg, had a good quote saying, at this point, it's good to get something out there, even though it's not the final product. I think that's an extremely important quote because, number one, it's good to get it out there. It might get rejected. It might get altered. There might be another proposal that comes through with new ideas. And to me, this is what government should be all about. We should start the conversation. People should explain their reasoning. People should defend why they don't want to give money, why they want the billionaires to pay for it all, which is a common misconception because public money is always part of these deals. It's very rare that you have the billionaires pay for everything. Mark Ananasio is a small B billionaire. He is not a Peter Sedlar from the Padres who has News Corp family money. Uh, Mark Ananasio does not have that, okay? I think it's also worth noting that the two newest stadiums that were built in baseball, the Atlanta Braves, it was $572 million. They did not have a roof, mind you. And the Atlanta Braves also would end up being $1.1 billion because Battery Park was an additional $400-some million to basically build their version of the Deer District. Texas cost $1.2 billion, and that was to have a roof on it as well. So if you look at those valuations, they're pretty similar to what the brewers need to do in terms of the upkeep of the, of the stadium. And let's remember also that this is partly due to the legislature legislators in 2000, you know, creating a tomorrow problem, being like, all right, we'll push it off to 230, 2030. We won't be here. We'll let somebody else deal with it. And I do understand some of the proponents against it saying, well, this deal sucks and they should rip it up. But if you rip it up and start it anew, again, the state still owns the Brewer Stadium. The Brewers are not trying to actively buy the stadium off the state. And if they do, then the Brewers have all the reason in the world to move if they want. And that to me, it would be a colossal mistake to rip up the deal and to not necessarily work with the brewers and figure out how do we how do we meet in the middle? How does everybody sort of get what they want? 
Also worth noting, the original construction of Miller Park cost $400 million. In today's world, the valuation would have been $662 million. So if you're wondering where they got the renovations, where they, they might have got a lot of this, it could be the fact that that's what it costs. Now, there are some questions. Number one, why wouldn't you build a new stadium if they, it's going to cost as much? I think that there is probably a lot more to think about in that, that scenario. Where do you put the stadium? Where does the stadium go? Uh, you can't really you know, build you know, an, another stadium in the parking lot like you did for Miller Park. There isn't exactly you know, room for it. I guess there's a forestry area over there, but that might be protected. And who knows how big that is. And I don't think there's room downtown to put a stadium there. You could say maybe in the area around where the Pfizer Forum is, but that would completely kill tailgating, which is a fundamental part of what the Brewers do. So I, I strongly disagree with that. I think the renovations are you know extended over time and they are things that none of us see. And I know that's frustrating, but that's kind of how it goes. You have like upkeep for a stadium is not cheap. It's not something that just is, you know, you can be like, all right, yeah, we'll pay 500 here, 600 there. Like it, it takes a lot of work to sort of get this stadium, you know, where it needs to be and continue to be one of the better ones in baseball. Would the state consider bringing in marijuana or sports gambling to the state of Wisconsin to offset some of these costs. I think it's a real conversation. If, you know, people who are against this are more are more on the liberal side of things who would be in favor of legalization of marijuana is usually a more liberal policy. What how would people feel about that? If they said, "All right, we're going to legalize weed because that will bring us, you know, X amount of dollars into our into our state." but it's really to help offset you know, the stadium costs, would people be okay with that? Would people be okay with sports gambling, which also would help out, and then you know, get basically help you fund this stadium and pay for it. And there are areas of opportunities. Now, state gambling is, or gambling is extremely tough considering that the tribes own a lot of it and it is, it, complicated Potawatomi does have you know their their app up but you can only do it inside the casino it they I don't even know if they have an app at this point there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make sports gambling a thing and marijuana has been something that's been discussed but it's been because you don't want to you know piss off the tavern league who's part of like the shadow government of Wisconsin and how can we get all of these parties to work together maybe that's a way could this lead to the Brewers introducing a beer district? And that's been something that has been talked about for a long time. I'm not a huge fan of it. Uh, I've talked about it in the past. I, I just think with tailgating being such a fundamental part of what people do, having like entertainment areas for people to hang out in, I don't know if it's really going to have the impact that people think it will. Uh, having you know restaurants, apartments, things like that. It, that tailgating is like that's your restaurant that not necessarily your apartments but those are like your restaurants really like they the um cincinnati has a great sort of version of this I, they call it the dock i believe 
Uh, we were there this summer and it's a lot of fun. It's kind of Deer District-esque, but a little bit better. It's extremely walkable. There are bars, you can carry your beer, you know, outside and everything else, but they don't have tailgating because the, the stadium is in the heart of the city. So I, I don't think like the Beer District would work as well as people think it, think it would. Now, maybe there's a way where you say, okay, we have these bars and restaurants, you know, kind of on Miller Parkway. We, we have a, a big sort of, you know, some apartments, things like that. And there are special shuttles that you take to the game and there, and you could sort of build some public transportation around it. I don't know. I think there are ways to do the beer district. I just don't think it's as good of an idea as people think, because also too, would you really want to go out in West Milwaukee? Like who's going out in West Milwaukee? Who's getting drunk in, you know, at McGinn's or Dugout 54? Like that to me is another part of this conversation where I, I don't exactly agree with putting that money there. I will go back to what LeMayu said about that this is the first bill. We got a long way to go. This is going to take some time, okay? I do think if the Brewers are successful in October, I wouldn't be surprised if it may, you know, the momentum kind of, grows and this something gets done sooner rather than later. But I, I do think that just healthy conversation is a good thing. This is a good starting point. We'll see where it goes. I understand it's a lot of money. I understand it's a big number, but if you look at the valuation of Miller Park today, it will be $662 million. We're right there at 700 million. We'll see where it all nets out. But again, this is not the this is not the end all be all. This is not the final decider, and we will see how it all shakes out in the next few weeks, months, and maybe years. Honestly, let's talk about actual baseball now, uh, not just government mumbo jumbo, all that fun stuff. Actual baseball, uh, which Milwaukee Brewers did play this weekend, and they had an awesome series. Uh, they won two out of three against the Washington Nationals. They won in dramatic fashion, both Saturday, Saturday especially, and then a little bit on Friday. I do wonder if the hangover of Saturday led to sort of a shoddy performance on Sunday. But it really didn't matter in terms of the Sunday loss because the Cubs also lost, and the Brewers' magic number is now seven for the division. All of a sudden, the division has favored the Brewers. The Brewers have a 100% chance to at least make the playoffs. The Cubs are falling fast. They have the Bears stink on them more than I ever thought they did. They have now lost eight of their last 10, 10 games and are just falling apart at the seams. It's, it's incredible to watch, but it's also scary for a Brewers-Cubs playoff series, which would personally kill me. Uh, that would be so bad because you have so many Cubs fans in American Family Field, the discourse would not be great, and it would I would live and die on every single pitch. But Saturday, man, Mark Canna's Grand Slam really reminded me of Ryan Braun. I, I think Adam McAlvey mentioned this too on Twitter, but it was very similar to that Ryan Braun Grand Slam in, tw in 2008 against Pittsburgh, which was, I believe, a 11th inning walk-off and a great Brian, young Brian Anderson call. Ryan Braun, like, loses his shit. And he lost his shit on Mark Cannon. It was a great call from him as well. And I was at the game, but I was at X-Golf because we were at for a birthday party. And it fucking kills me that I was not in the stands for that. Like, that, that one hurts. It hurts real bad. 
Again, it wasn't my party. It wasn't my moment. I would have looked like a loner if I went by myself and I was just sitting there watching baseball. And but and I was still watching. Like I was still engaged. I was watching on the stoop of X Golf, but you're inside the glass box. So you hear the radio broadcast, you hear the sounds, but you're not with the fans in that moment. It's just tough, man. It was it was a tough moment for your boy. Uh, but yeah, it, it was still an amazing one. The vibes were very high after that game. I feel like you, after that one, you you believe that this team could win could win a lot of games in October. I will say too, one of the things that I realized about I, for the limited time that we were in the stands, there was playoff energy there right away. Like everybody was hanging on every pitch, getting excited about every base hit, every strikeout. It's really good to see Corbin Burns. First game pitching with Contreras. I felt like that's important uh, given the fact that Victor Carantini, while Burns' catcher, is not necessarily great for the Brewers' offense. Uh, and I think the Brewers needed to see what they had with Contreras. And it the results were mixed, right? Uh, Corbin Burns you know, pitched well until that sixth inning. Uh, the sixth inning, he just completely fell apart, let the Nationals tie up the baseball game and the Brewers would end up, you know, obviously winning with the Canna Grand Slam. But that, was it, did he tie it up or did they get three runs? Regardless, it was a mess for Corbin Burns uh, before before he was able to, he got removed. He didn't make it out. Baguero ended up having to pitch. Yeah, the game at that point was, it was 5-4. It was 5-4. Then they get a, a tie it in the eighth off of Pianis, who also has not been the, not been the best Uh so, but Piamis uh, did end up getting a win, which is hilarious in retrospect because he also blew blew that game. But yeah, Burns looked good for a while with Contreras until that sixth inning, sort of everything fell apart for him. So I think that's maybe the part to work on. Um, and we'll see if Contreras catches Burns again or if Carantini is going to get it when he, he goes to the mound on Thursday against the Cardinals. Uh, but uh, and the Brewers' offense was good in that game early on, but they did take the foot off the gas pedal. Uh, the Brewers had five runs early in this game uh, as Josh Johnson drove in a run uh, for the fifth run in the fifth inning, and then the Brewers really didn't do much. They kind of just hung around with the rest of that Nationals bullpen before the Mark Canna Grand Slam in the ninth and eighth inning. So I mean, I guess they did do some damage, but it was just. There was an area of opportunity to really pull away in this game, and the Brewers didn't exactly take advantage. They were six for fifteen overall with runners in scoring position. So that that sort of tells you the story. Even though the Brewers were adding runs, they weren't adding enough. There was definitely an opportunity for the Brewers to drive in more in this in this football game or baseball game. Excuse me. Uh, still, you know, when you you do football and you're getting laid in the pot, it, it stays on your mind. Friday, also great win, you know, down early. Looked like the Brewers were going to suffer a loss. I had told you guys about Jake Irvin was pretty good uh, in the last 30 days. And the Brewers haven't hit a ton of home runs, but they did in this one. Uh, Contreras with a three-run blast to tie it up 450 feet. Was an absolute cock shot by him. And then two from Santana, one a back-to-back, and then an insurance one later. It was good to see the Brewers win a game of the long ball. That has not really been their thing you know, in this sort of sustained success in the last 30 days. But it's definitely something that needs to happen a little more often. Um, and hopefully we're going to see that see that more. 
Sunday, I just thought you had a hungover baseball team. I think everybody just the last two days were such big emotion games and the Brewers are playing a lot of baseball, right? This was their, they've played seven straight, maybe 10 straight games so far. Uh, and I think the Brewer, yeah, 10 straight, right? Cause you have seven more uh, this week. I think the Brewers were just a little tired and just kind of needed a day to reset after the theatrics of Friday, Saturday, a little bit of Friday. So I'm not gonna do, not gonna worry too much about the loss. Uh, Should have been one that they won with Patrick Corbin on the mound, but what are you gonna do? Uh, that's baseball for you. And the Brewers now head out to St. Louis uh, for a four-game series against the Cardinals. Uh, Cardinals are still playing their guys. I've been waiting for the, hey, we're going to rest Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt for the rest of the year, but that hasn't happened. Uh, they, they actually won yesterday playing okay baseball. Uh, they've won their five and five in their last 10. Uh, and they're, I think, what's their record in their last 29 and 11. So that, not terrible, uh, not as bad as they've been, uh, but it's the the game tonight is tough because it's Adam Wainwright going first 200th win in St. Louis. It's Adam Wainwright's last game started in St. Louis. It's not exactly what you want. And Freddie Peralta goes for Brewers. Uh, Peralta has obviously been great in the second half. He's really struggled with the Cardinals in his career. Uh, a little... Tabby the Cat gambling tip, stay the fuck away from that game. Uh, do not touch it. Uh, Peralta's been very bad for his career against the Cardinals. And it would be a huge hurdle for Freddie. Even if the Brewers don't win that game, it'd be a huge hurdle for Freddie to overcome if he's able to sort of figure out the Cardinals for the first time in his career. Then you have Adrian Hauser against Drew Rahm. Drew Rahm has been pretty brutal until his last start. Uh, the, the journeyman lefty. Uh, Hauser, you know, still looking to sort of get back to full strength. You have Wade Miley against Zach Tom Thompson, another lefty-lefty matchup. Uh, Miley was okay against the Cardinals this year. Uh, the Cardinals have not been the same team that they were last year against lefties, so at least they have that going for them. Uh, Zach Thompson has been reliable uh, for this Cardinals team. Kind of looks like maybe a guy for them next season. And then you have Corbin Burns versus Miles Michaelis. Miles Michaelis has been a mess. Uh, really this entire year. Uh, Brewers should definitely take advantage of that one. Uh, and we'll see how Burnsy does on a day game. When day games have been nuts uh, for the Brewers here, it seems like uh, the last few. So hopefully things do not get out of hand. But definitely a series where the Brewers just need to keep the foot on the gas pedal. Uh, they're almost there in terms of clinching the division and getting closer and closer to you know the final destination. And then once you get the division, then it's, you know, it's a little bit of house money the rest of the way. You're six and a half up now on the Cubs, seven and a half on the Cincinnati Reds. And yeah, it's just inching ever so close to getting to that final spot. I do not know. Let's see who the Reds and Cubs have this week. I would imagine the Cubs don't play tomorrow, given the fact that there's a half game in there. So yeah, so the Brewers could get a half game on them. They, the Twins are facing off against Cincinnati and Twins have been really good. Uh, of late so that's gonna be a tough matchup for the Reds who are now hovering into that playoff spot and the Cubs are home for the Pirates who they've owned uh, this year so maybe the Cubs get back on track they've been very good at home but yeah it's it's definitely gut check time uh, for the Cubs and we'll see how they do but yeah the Brewers hopefully get the job done against St. Louis uh, and you know I think when you're you know on the road it's always 500 so you have 
four in St. Louis, three against Miami. So let's hope for a four and three or three and four road trip on the last before the playoffs. All right, the podcast wrapping up. One of the longest solo pods that I've done in my pod career, uh, but we have to at least talk about the Wisconsin Badgers. Wisconsin Badgers won 35-14. They woke up in the second half. They were down 14-7 to Georgia Southern with 12-33 left to go in the third quarter. And then from there, the Badgers took full advantage. Braylon Allen scored twice. Mordecai scored once. And the Badgers' defense held strong. They had six turnovers overall. Uh, Davis Brin threw five interceptions. They also got a fumble late. Um, and they were able to sack the quarterback six times. Now, the other side of it is Brent threw for 363. Now, he did throw 52 times. So they're, they're, that at least the context is at least needed there a little bit uh, from Brent. But the bigger takeaway that I have from this game is why is Wisconsin still sort of sloppy, sleepy early on in football games and how can you how can you do this with the big 10 because i i feel like this is not a good sign for the wisconsin badgers the wisconsin badgers seemingly need like the moment to sort of jolt them and the jolt was okay georgia southern's beating you at home and you are not playing to your standard and then all of a sudden you're like okay yeah we'll figure it out and we then not only do we win we cover the spread and we look great and and just everything clamps down and everything sort of clicks so is it that the wisconsin badgers are sort of i wouldn't want to say plain possum but that they are sort of not necessarily fully up for these games because they're non-conference games is it they're a little tight because they know that there's expectations is it the way that luke fickle's coaching them that this is a combination of transfers coming in versus guys who were recruited by paul chris so sort of how luke fickle gets these guys ready for a game is different than paul chris and the adjustment is still there they're still not necessarily ready i thought it was interesting that the broadcast noted that the defense is actually behind the offense which is surprising it usually is the opposite way around we usually do not see the offense be the ones that are ahead of schedule in a in a situation like this where it's all brand new uh, but it appears to be the case and that's that's something that it maybe it's a sign the defense is starting to kind of bring it around and, and you're seeing guys you know contribute on that defense Hunter Waller has been great to start the year uh, he had an interception he had a sack in this he had two interceptions he had a sack in this game Hallman nearly Hallman had an interception as well uh, Daryl Peterson came down with two sacks James Thompson has really sort of started to become a little bit of a force there there are pieces on this defense and so I think that is a good sign. Remember week one, we were like, did the Badgers have any guys on defense? I think they at least do. I think that's at least encouraging, right? That the Badgers are not necessarily a guyless defense, but I, I do wonder about just sort of the sleepy nature. Is, you know, are, are they gonna be, are you know the Badgers gonna be able to survive that in the Big Ten? You know, maybe that first you know couple games they are, but when you get into the meet, when you're facing the Ohio States, you're facing the Iowas, that could that could lead to disaster. Like that could be something that you're really you're really dealing with and you're into it. Or when you're on the road and you're in these tough environments. I know Purdue lost another home game to Syracuse under the lights 
last week, but you have a Friday night in Purdue for, to kick off the Big Ten season, and that's it's not going to be an easy task. That's not going to be something where you're just going to you're just going to go in there and win, and you can expect to win. And I, I think that that's something that the Badgers are going to have to figure out: is how do we start fast? What do we do? What does Longo do from a script perspective? And that you know we've seen so many coaches, NFL, college get so good at those scripts and those first 15 plays, exactly what you need. And it doesn't necessarily feel like Phil Longo has sort of done that so far with the Badgers. And so is that a Mordecai issue? Which I wouldn't disagree with. Mordecai's not very, I don't think very good. I've told you guys that on the pod that I'm not a huge Tanner Mordecai guy. Or is that that they're trying to sort of, you know, meld this air raid with what they used to do with running the football. Like the Badgers rushed for 207 yards in this game. And five touchdowns overall. Mordecai had two. Allen had one. Malusi had one. Like, you need to use your running attack. You need to have that be your focus. You know, Mordecai still threw the ball and Brady locked 31 times to 38 on the ground. I feel like it needs to be more. And maybe that's what unlocks it is that you start running the ball early. And then that opens it up for Tanner Mordecai and sort of gets that gets it to a better spot. Because... I think that that's, that's a way in. And yes, Wisconsin allowed some explosives defensively, but they, you know, forcing turnovers and giving the batters a shot at their offensive shot, they took advantage of it in the second half. And they started to find the holes in Georgia Southern. I just worry if you always do the second half thing, that's going to bite you at some point, whether it's next week against Purdue, whether it's against Rutgers, who's been playing really good football to start the year, whether it's Iowa. Uh, it's, it's definitely going to make things more difficult and definitely make things really hard for Wisconsin to you know be in that top tier, that top echelon of Big Ten teams. And frankly, I don't think they are there right now. I thought they were there at the start of the year. I don't think they are at this very moment. I, I think Iowa, to me, is the Big Ten West favorite. Um, I know that they have not played a very di- tough schedule. I think that the Penn State game next week will tell me a lot. I really like Penn State. I actually think Penn State right now looks like the best team in the Big Ten overall. But if Iowa is able to keep it close against Penn State at home, or in Happy Valley, that is, I, I really have to start thinking of Iowa as that best team in the Big Ten West, and that's who the Badgers are going to have to beat to get there. Uh, but uh, the Big Ten West is, is looking shaky, and we're going to talk more with Mitch about sort of resetting the Big Ten, sort of seeing where we are uh, with this Big Ten, you know, more on the West side of things, and if the Badgers have a shot at that Big Ten West title or where sort of he would set the odds uh, later this week. So that, stay tuned for that. Uh, that will come out Thursday as we get ready for Purdue. But, yeah, it's – it's concerning that Wisconsin continues to have to sort of wake up before they can start playing football. Uh, that's been that's definitely a struggle uh, for the Badgers. All right, that does it. Uh, I'm spent. Uh, it's a was it 71 minutes just me talking. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, I will tell you tomorrow's pod will not be that long. We'll have observations from Saints Panthers as the Packers opponent. We get a live scout against. Uh, we'll also do our power poll that we did last week. Uh, we'll bring that back as well as, you know, thing, lessons that we learned from week two. And I want to talk about Marquette's schedule. Uh, that came out on Friday. Uh, we haven't talked about that. We'll talk about Marquette's schedule, uh, kind of some observations, Big East. 
And I'm trying to think, man, who knows what else will come come across. Maybe we'll have news on Bakhtiari, can react to that. Uh, but yeah, a lot, lot on deck for tomorrow. And then Mitch and I on Thursday, and then the betting preview on Friday. So stay tuned for all that and much more. All right, take care, guys. Have a good Monday, even though it's not a victory Monday. And we'll be back tomorrow. See ya. Bye.